Father, it is a delight to come to you in your word, knowing that your word is what feeds us, what strengthens our soul, what calls us to faith in Jesus, that it is on every word that proceeds from your mouth that we live. That your word is life. And it's by your spirit that this happens within us. So I pray this morning that as we come and as we see in your word, the beautiful authority of Jesus. And as we see in your word, how he uses that authority to save those who are perishing. I pray that you would draw us into this story so that we could see Jesus more clearly and love him more deeply. And I pray that that would be what changes us to be more like him. To follow him faithfully and love one another faithfully. And to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, this is what we long for this morning. We are confident that you will do what you need to do by your spirit in everyone's heart this morning as we hear these words. And so I pray that you would help us to rest in that confidence that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive from your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our sermon text for this morning, friends, is Matthew 8, chapter, uh, verses 18 to 34. It's the second half of Matthew chapter 8. We covered the first half last week. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the text before we approach it here. There's two stories we see, and they're very familiar stories. I am confident if you spent any time in the church that you've heard these stories before. One is the story of Jesus calming the storm as his disciples are fearful of the boat being swamped in the middle of the sea. And the other story is Jesus casting out demons into a herd of pigs from men who are so fierce that nobody can pass that way. These are very familiar stories and they're paired together in all of the Gospels, which must mean that God wants us to see something together in these stories. There's two themes in these stories as we look at them as a whole. One is very clear. We introduced it last week, and that's the authority of Jesus. We saw Matthew introduce the theme of authority in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, as he talked about Jesus speaking with such authority. And now Jesus is doing with such authority. But there's another theme that we didn't hit on as much last week, but comes really strongly to the fore in this text today. And that is the theme of faith. This theme of discipleship. What it looks like to follow Jesus in faith. I was trying to think this week about how these themes fit together. And how we ought to approach thinking about both of these themes in light of our these stories today. And I was struck by the language used to describe the disciples as those who have little faith. And I was thinking about what is the key to faith? How do we grow from having little faith to having what we might call great faith? As I was thinking about these things, I was thinking about the importance of seeing who Jesus is, which the disciples do. Jesus reveals how powerful he is over the storm and the disciples reflect on that and say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? And yet, I think as we 
will realize from both our own experience and as we can see in this text, merely to see who Jesus is is not enough. Merely to see him perform mighty miracles is not enough to engender faith. The missing ingredient, I believe we'll see, is to love what we see. It's seeing what Jesus does and loving who that reveals him to be that leads to trusting him. And so this morning, I want to approach the text that way. I want us to see Jesus' authority. I think it's important to see how powerful he indeed is and how he uses that authority to save those that are perishing. But then I want us to think about why does he save those who are perishing? And I think that's what leads into this idea of who he is that grows our love for him. And we're going to see that through the theme of faith and discipleship. So we're going to see, and then Lord willing, we're going to be drawn into love. That's the plan for this morning. In light of that, let's take a look at the story. And we're going to read each of these stories one at a time and talk about them a little bit under the theme of authority. So let's look first at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. There's a little bit of an introduction with a call to disciples, and then there's the stormy sea. Verse 18 says this, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Friends, we see in this first story that Jesus himself has authority over all physical reality. Notice he commands others to follow him. He expects their obedience when he says in verse 18, go over to the other side. He expects their obedience when he says in verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And some do. Notice in 23, the disciples follow him. He makes demands, expects that they are obeyed because he has the authority to command people. This is authority over physical reality. These people are human beings, and he is commanding them. And yet, most of our eyes, most of our attention is drawn to his authority that he exercises over nature as he controls it. The disciples are out in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and there's winds and waves coming up. The the language even there is used uh, of earthquake. The waters are quaking, causing wind and waves to come up over the side of the boat and frighten these experienced fishermen. 
These people living by the Sea of Galilee had no qualms about being on the water in stormy seas. They often experienced these kind of things. And yet it is enough to cause them to believe that unless they wake up their teacher and cry out to him, they're going to die. A massive, massive storm. And in the middle of it, Jesus is asleep. Asleep and then woken by their cries. And then responding to them, why are you afraid? He rises and he rebukes the wind with a word. And all is calm. I don't think it's possible for us to imagine the sort of contrast that must have happened when that took place. Most of us don't experience storms just all of a sudden quitting like that. Most of us experience the gradual dying down of the storm. But here, we see it's instantly calm at Jesus' word. He has the authority, because he is Lord of creation, to command all of physical reality. And he does. That's not the only authority we see, though, in this text. Look at verses 28 to 34. Here we have the demon being cast out. When he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. In here, we see that not only does Jesus have authority over physical reality, Jesus actually has authority over spiritual reality as well. We're inclined to miss that because we see demon-possessed and our naturalistic, materialistic way of thinking about the world in the West dismisses it. Most of us probably aren't crass enough to dismiss it as mere myth, but we don't really grasp it. We think more in terms of maybe a caricature, like something from The Exorcist or Paranormal Activity or some other kind of scary movie. And these demon-possessed men are taking control of and speaking weird, and Jesus commands the demons to go. That is what he does, but there's so much more here. There's so much more. Demon possession in the New Testament is so far beyond what we experience in scary movies. Or what the world might portray at Halloween or something like that. To be demon possessed is to be under the influence of evil spirits. And this recognizes that there is a spiritual reality. This is why Paul makes such a big deal in Ephesians 6. Out of equipping ourselves to stand firm against the flaming darts of the evil one. Because there are spiritual realities and behind those spiritual realities are evil spirits. Who seek to destroy God's works. Which includes all of creation. The demons themselves are part of creation. Joining Satan in the great rebellion. And they are every bit as real as the physical storm. 
They manifested that reality in these men being so fierce that no one could go that way. Mark talks about the same story and talks about it in terms of being able to break chains, in terms of being able to not be bound, but to be fiercely hurt people. This reality was manifested and Jesus comes along and exercises authority over this spiritual reality. Because he is Lord of creation, he can not only command physical reality like waves and winds, but he can command spiritual reality like demons. And he cast them out with the word. Verse 32. He said to them, go. And they went. Jesus exercises authority over spiritual reality by commanding demons, but also by being the one who is to judge them. Notice in verse 29, they say, what have you come here to torment us before the time? This is language of judgment, recognizing that there is a time that Jesus is going to sit in judgment over all of his enemies. And that Satan and all of his demonic forces will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus himself is the one who gets to judge. And so he is able to exercise unparalleled authority over these demons. He doesn't have to cajole them into somehow bending to his wishes like other Jewish exorcists of the day. He just commands them with the word and they're gone. Jesus is Lord of all creation. As the New City Catechism puts it, when the question is put, who is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything is the beginning of the answer to that question. And Jesus, as himself God, is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. We see that in John 1, 1 to 3, where we see that all things are created through the word, the pre-existing word, which is Jesus Christ himself. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, where we see that the Son himself is the one that sustains everything, upholding the universe by the word of his power. The same one who created everything and sustains everything is able then to say to the sea, be still, and it is. He's able to say to the demons, be gone, and they are. Because he is Lord of all of that. There is nothing outside of his control. And yet here he is incarnate as a man. Who commands the seas and they recognize their creator. And yet he's asleep in a boat as he goes across. Who is the one that possesses everything and yet he says he will have nowhere to lay his head. Who is the one that has authority to judge. And yet he shows mercy to these townspeople as they run him off. Jesus himself is Lord of creation. And he uses that authority for the good of his people. That's the key question we want to think about as we're going through these 10 miracle stories in Matthew 8 through 9. How does Jesus use this authority? What does he do with the fact that he can do basically whatever he wants? What does he do with that? The reality in this text is that Jesus uses his authority to save the perishing. It's pretty easy to see in the first story, right? Verses 25 and 26, what do, the, what do his disciples cry? Save us, Lord, we are perishing. I don't think we should spiritualize that and, and uh, 
say that the disciples knew that they needed saving in the forgiveness from sin sense, they thought they were going to drown. And they cry out to their Lord, and he saves them, he rescues them, he helps them. He saves his perishing disciples with a word by speaking to the sea to be still. In the second story, though, we see him save someone that's perishing as well. Notice what happens to those pigs as the demons are put into them. They run into the sea. You ever wonder why that is? Seems like a strange detail to be in the Gospels. There's a herd of pigs, and Jesus casts the demons into the pigs, and they go into the sea. What's up with that? I think the reality is that that's showing us the demons fulfilling their desire. And their desire is to destroy any of God's creation that they can. They know there is a time of judgment and that their time is short. And so what they long to do most of all is to destroy as much of God's good creation as possible. And so when they're put in a position where they're able to do that, they drive the, they drive the pigs straight into the sea. Why didn't they destroy the, the men they were possessing? I believe it's because of God's kindness in sparing those men. In restraining that much evil. We certainly have seen many people destroy themselves. And I think we can easily say that that is demonically influenced. We would tend to try to naturalize it today. To try to put material means of understanding. Well, we know there's mental health disorders and things like that. And there are things we can understand about physical realities. Not denying that. But we know the reality that Satan and all of his minions seek to destroy everything that god made and everything that god loves and so we can say with certainty that there is demonic influence behind those who would destroy themselves and that's what the end of these persons that were possessed by demons that's what the end of that for them would have been they were perishing albeit a little slower than the pigs they were perishing and what did jesus do he came and he used his authority to save those who are perishing. He delivered them from the path that they were on, a path of destruction. Jesus uses his authority to save the perishing. And this is a glorious, glorious reality for us. This is something that we can cling to because it shows Jesus' willingness to help his people. And yet, seeing this is not enough. Seeing this is not enough. Notice the townsfolk. They see the reality that these men have been delivered from horrible, horrible circumstances, living in tombs, fiercely combating anybody around them. And what do they do? Just like the demons begged Jesus to let them go to the pigs, the townspeople begged Jesus to leave. They see, but it's not enough. They reject this Lord of creation. The demons see, right? We read elsewhere in scripture that you believe that God exists. Good, the demons do. They see, but remain hostile. When they're saying, what have you to do with us, O son of God? They're trying to imply there's nothing you have to do with us. And they're not using son of God in like a good way. They're most likely using son of God to try to control Jesus. They see this reality, but are hostile. And I think most significantly for us, the disciples see, right? Like they're in the boat, crying out to Jesus, Lord, save us, we are perishing. 
speaking really better than they know, I think. Save us, we are perishing. And they see Jesus stand up and rebuke their little faith. And then turn and command the sea to be still, and it is. Does this solve their little faith problem? No. We see all through the rest of Matthew that they remain those of little faith. Particularly interesting is Matthew 14, where the disciples are again in a storm on a sea. And this time it's Jesus walking on water out to them. And Peter, brave Peter, says, can I come out to you? And Jesus says, come. And he walks out. And he looks around and starts to doubt. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, oh, you have little faith. Or Matthew 16, when they're worried about not having enough bread to feed those around them. And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Seeing this does not fix their little faithness. Seeing is not enough. We need to see. But I think in addition to that, we need to love what we see. We need to love what we see. We need to see clearly and we need to savor that vision that we see. This is what produces faith. We see the works of Jesus and these works then reveal to us who he is. And as we grow to know who he is, this is what we learn to love. And the key, I think, is in the question that the disciples ask in verse 27. What sort of man is this? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Not just what has he done, but who is he? And I think to get to the bottom of who is he, we have to ask the question, why is he doing these things? Not just the fact that he does, but why does he use his authority to save those who are perishing and i think that reality is brought to the fore for us in the theme of faith and discipleship throughout this text and so i want to look through again with eyes looking for that kind of thing and i want to look first at matthew 18 to 20 to 22 jesus saw a crowd And gave orders to go over to the other side. And two people approach him. Verse 19. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a strange response. I think it's strange. Maybe you don't. I think it's weird to respond this way. Until we realize why Jesus would respond this way to him. This scribe is saying, I will follow you wherever you go. And I think the key is the word wherever. And then Jesus gives a record of the fact that wherever he goes, he will not have a place to lay his head. This scribe is confident. He's kind of Peter-like in his promise to follow Jesus wherever he would go. He is overconfident in his ability to follow Jesus. Almost to the sense of like... Jesus, I'm, I'm willing to come with you wherever you go, not like these other guys over here. I'm in. I'm 100%. 110%. And Jesus tells him, essentially, to count the cost. To think about the fact that the Son of Man will have nowhere to lay his head. Even though he is the Son of Man with all authority over creation, he will not have somewhere to call home. He will constantly be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
So before you make the promise to follow him wherever he will go, count the cost. This disciple was overconfident in his ability to be faithful. Then we have the opposite in verse 21. Verse 21, we have another disciple, another follower of Jesus, who says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Again, a strange response when we first read it. But if we think a little bit about what he's saying, he's saying, let me first go and bury my father, which may mean his father is dead and he ought to bury him. Or it may mean in the sense we would mean it these days of, I need to take care of my aging parents. Whichever it means, I think the emphasis is on first. This disciple says, first, before I follow you, I need to do this. And Jesus says, just like he says elsewhere in Matthew, I must be first, right? That's what he's getting at when he says, leave the dead to bury their dead and follow me. Not disregard and disrespect your parents. Jesus holds that up. The care of parents, the care of widows, the care of children. This is not an excuse to leave all that behind. But this is a call, just like he calls later in Matthew. If you don't hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. He's not calling us to hate our parents, but to hate them in comparison. He's calling this disciple to put following him first. This is a reluctant disciple, and he's calling him to commit. After both of these non-examples, if you will, the kind of disciples you don't want to be, we see the disciples follow Jesus into the boat. Verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And we think, maybe these guys are the ones that are going to do it right. And yet, we see in the storm what happens. They're revealed to be cowardly disciples. Disciples fear, filled with fear rather than faith. This is the problem that Jesus has with them coming to him. Not that they came to him and woke him up, and they shouldn't have. Not even necessarily that they were motivated to come to him by a little bit of healthy fear of the storm. But that their response was, even though Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the one who controls everything, is in the boat, we are still going to go down. And we are perishing because of it. Their cowardice, Jesus rebukes. In verse 26, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rebukes the winds and the sea and shows them why they should not have been afraid. All three of these are what we might call faith failures. And Jesus responds by calling them to do things like count the cost or commit or take courage. Jesus wants faith-filled disciples he doesn't want disciples to be like this he wants them to be filled with faith he's not desperate for disciples he doesn't take the first guy that comes and says hey i'll follow you wherever you would go that seems like a winner right there but jesus sees through it and says no you need to count the cost and he doesn't despise the disciple that comes and says let me first go and bury my father he says no come follow me he wants them to have the kind of faith-filled response that befits disciples. He is not opposed to faith-filled disciples. In fact, he, he praises the faith of the centurion, even already in the previous story, right? 
This is the kind of faith he's looking for, he says. And here are three failures to show that kind of faith. Jesus wants faith-filled disciples, but here's what's really important to see. Jesus wants faith-filled disciples, but Jesus does not save the perishing because they are faith-filled. Okay, That's really important. Jesus wants faith-filled disciples, but he does not save because of that faith. He does not save because his disciples are faith-filled. Notice who he saves in these stories. Jesus uses all of his authority to draw near, to come to the rescue, to save those who are perishing. And the ones that are perishing are the little faiths, the ones who don't show the kind of faith that Jesus wants, and the demon-possessed, the ones who certainly don't show the kind of faith that Jesus wants. What, kind of, what are they showing? They're showing hostility. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he saves them from their perishing. Jesus expects faith, but he does not save because of faith. And I think this calls to attention something important for us, which is that we must be aware of making faith a work. We can really easily do that. The Catholics are really good at making works works. And in the Protestant camp, we are really good at making a faith a work. In other words, we look at the disciples and we see that their faith was too small and we think, well, they had to believe harder. Or we think that their faith was too small and we think, well, they had to follow harder. Or they had to do X harder and then Jesus would approve of them. The problem isn't that their faith is too small in size. In fact, a mustard seed itself is small, right? The problem was that their faith, the problem with their faith, I should say, was that it was filled with fear. This is not, though, what led Jesus to rescue them. So why? Why, would, why did he rescue them? If it's not because they had faith, why does Jesus draw near and save the perishing? The reality, friends, that we see in this story today is that Jesus saves the perishing because they are perishing and because he wants to. Jesus saves the perishing ultimately because he wants to. This is so important for us to see. This is what will stir our hearts to be drawn in to love Jesus. Not just the fact that he saves the perishing, but the fact that he saves them merely because he wants to. Notice, Jesus helps all of those who come to him merely because he wants to. Think about the pattern in chapter 8. I'm grateful for Frederick Dale Brunner pointing this out in chapter 8. He gives, in his commentary, a grade to the faith of the various people in chapter 8. Think about the various people Jesus has helped. The leper pretty good, right? Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That's like, that's like pristine faith. The centurion, pretty good faith, but it wasn't the centurion that Jesus ultimately helped, right? It was the servant at home, sick. Maybe he asked his master to go to Jesus. Maybe he didn't. We don't know, but he's not really there like confessing strong things about Jesus. So he's a little bit more like a bee. And then we have the mother-in-law, 
Peter's mother-in-law, she wasn't even awake to exercise faith. And Jesus helped her. She's kind of neutral. That's good. But then we have the disciples. The disciples who have little faith. The disciples who have cowardly faith. And what does Jesus do? He helps them. And then we have the demon acts, which is a fancy word for a person possessed by a demon. And what does Jesus do? He helps them, even though they are hostile to him. Why does he help all these people? It's merely because he wants to. This is Jesus' very mission, is to save the perishing. To help those who cannot help themselves. This is what Jesus talks about in John. John chapter 6, Jesus talks about this. And he says this. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus helps all who come to him. Because he wants to, because he's here to do the Father's will. Which is to save all of those who come to him. To not lose a single one of them. To not cast them out. But bring them all into life. What we ought to do then is we ought to come to him. Because he helps. This is what these stories are trying to teach us. Is to come to the one who is able and willing and desires to help. To come to the one who has authority over all of creation and can calm the storm and can cast out the demon. And can do anything else that is needed to help his people. To come to him. But we have to remember, friends, that even in our coming to Jesus, it's a work of grace. We can tend to think maybe the act of coming to Jesus is what somehow makes him willing to help. Maybe if we come just the right way, he will be willing to help us. Maybe if we say just the right thing to him, he'll be willing to help us. This is still a pagan belief. This is still a distortion of the gospel. We are so prone to believe this. To think that Jesus helps those who help themselves. Either by coming to him. In the right way, or by saying the right thing to him, or believing hard enough, or having the proper doctrine. None of these things are prerequisites that earn somehow Jesus' help for you. That's what the pagans believe, is they believe that you manipulate the gods by doing the right thing to get their attention. That's not what we believe about the gospel. We believe the reality of the gospel is that Jesus comes and helps those who need his help because he wants to. Jesus saves the perishing because he wants to. Jesus helps those who cannot help themselves. Always. Solely because he wants to and solely because he loves us. The reality that we see here is that Jesus comes to those who cannot come to him. Right? We've seen that already in him coming to those outside of the Jewish community. In the leper 
and, and, and with the servant who can't even get out of bed to come to him and with the mother-in-law who's totally out of it. We see that in this story too. Where Jesus goes might not be very significant to you, but it should be. Verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Most of us don't know where that is. I don't even really know where it is. It's on the north shore of Galilee. It's in Gentile territory. Why was there a herd of pigs nearby? Because there are a bunch of Gentile farmers. What does Jesus do? He descends from his heavenly throne, becomes incarnate, and then takes a boat across the Sea of Galilee to enemy territory and claims back two men made in his image. Rescues them from perishing, draws them back to him. This is what Jesus does. He comes to those who cannot come to him, even into enemy territory, to save those who are perishing, especially his enemies. Right? And who are his enemies? All of those living in rebellion against God, including you and I. Jesus does this, why? Because he wants to. Because of who he is. Matthew 1 reveals to us that his parents were to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This is core to who he is. And it's the key to our faith. Seeing his works that reveal who he is and display his great love for us. The reality is, why did Jesus save you in the midst of your perishing? Why did he do what Paul says, making you alive when you were dead? Because he wanted to. Because of his great love for you. This is how we learn to love him. First John talks about it. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. We see that. And we're drawn into that. That Jesus as the Lord of creation uses his authority to save the perishing. Because he wants to. Because it's part of the joy that is set before him. To use the words of Hebrews 12. He endured the cross, despising the shame, for the joy that is set before him. And what is that joy? To save those who are perishing. That's what he loves to do. I want to close this morning by reading the way that Frederick Dale Brenner puts it in his Matthew commentary. Because I think it's just so helpful. He says this, Jesus loves trust in him, praises it and helps it. But he does not tyrannically demand it of us in large, not to mention entire measures before he helps. These stories teach that Jesus helps because he wants to help. Jesus himself coaxes a more entire devotion from us in almost every encounter with him. This is the nature of friendship. Friends, this is the nature of friendship with Jesus. That he saves the perishing because he wants to. That he saved you from perishing because he wanted to. That he wants to see in you the kind of faith that is built by beholding him as the one who has power over everything. And uses that to rescue you. And he wants you to stand firm in that faith knowing that he is for you. And that in him, you can truly display the kind of faith he calls for. You can be grounded 
and rooted in the kind of love that he calls for because he has first loved you. That's what this story tells us. And friends, I just want to leave us with that and pray that God would help us to meditate on that throughout this next week. Because I think if we do, our faith will be extremely strengthened. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you did not even wait until we could seek you out because the reality is we could never. But that you, rather than using all of the authority that you have as creator and sustainer for your own benefit, you set that aside and chose to become a human being, to enter into your creation on behalf of your creation. And then to use your power and your authority to save those who are perishing. Jesus, we praise you that you endured all of this all the way up to and including the cross. That you humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross. We praise you as the one that God has highly exalted above every other name. Rightly so. I pray, Lord, that as we... Continue to meditate on these things at your table and the rest of this day and the rest of this week to come. That Lord, you would help us to behold this truth, to behold this reality. Would you guard us from somehow feeling like if we believe enough, maybe you'll finally help us. Or it's because we believe enough that you do help us. Would you help us see That your love far exceeds our limited vision of it. And would you draw us in to know that love more, we pray. Amen.